Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sagnus. And Chris, how are you doing this Wednesday evening? Well, where do snails get their shells? I think that's a really good question. I'm glad you asked. It rains a little bit today, got up to 65. There you so. go. That's what Uncle Tom said. <laughs> oh, Uncle Tom <laughs> from his cabin. <laughs> no, you see, there's Uncle Tom's everywhere, isn't there? Everyone, you know, what what imagine the problem. <laughs> I was just reading about a guy whose name is Tom, and he is an uncle. And it doesn't really matter what color his skin is, but it's a problem, you know. <laughs> but it's it a really problem. is. I was telling you, we were talking off mic, and I wanted to start the show off with this because on this program, we talk a lot about the overuse of words and how they become less and less pertinent the more and more you use them. They become less semantically valid. Yeah, the more abuse. The more abused they are. And I was thinking today about the word woke. And it was in the context of Moderna announcing that they have created an mRNA injection to combat the heart failures and the myocarditis and the heart disease that is more than likely caused by their initial shots. So it's beyond the point of parody now. They have a new thing. And I got to looking at some things on the internet, and it's hard to click three links without coming on something that we would categorize as woke, right? We use the word woke on this show a lot. And I thought to myself, you know, woke's not doing it for me anymore. It it seems to be too buzzy, too overused. It's um, used by a lot of people who I uh, wouldn't prefer to associate with more people on the far right. They call everything woke. When we use it on this show, we're referring to something very specific, but Tucker Carlson is using it a little bit different. So I believe in calling a spade a spade. I'm switching back to a good old fashioned word from the MK ultra days. And I'm saying brainwashed. Ah. I'm just going back to brainwashed. I thought you'd like that. Because yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying, I know like- there's uh I know there's connotations to woke that have to do with social justice, but I think that the bluntness of the term brainwashing and immediately what it conjures to mind is a clockwork orange, Malcolm McDowell with his eyes forced open and forced to watch and forced to be a good boy and do what good boys are supposed to do. I think brainwashing brings to mind a mental patient with a bunch of suction cups on their heads, all hooked into a kind of machine, uh, being hypnotized into shooting up a Walmart or something. So I'm going with brainwash from now on. And I think that's fair enough. It's got a great pedigree, you know, coming out of the the Cold War era, coming out of the counterculture the great fantasies of paranoia and fear. I mean, how many of those shows, books, et cetera, you know, featured that theme? I mean, and the and the beautiful thing is the proof is that that if someone really is brainwashed, they may not know, you know, that's, that's the thing. That's the good, you know, exactly. And, that's it. And I, I've just, I've heard there's a lot of cults in the news these days. Um, we had a guest on the show who had been in a cult for a few years 
and got themselves out of it and talked about how he was an atheist who joined a Judeo-Christian doomsday cult for shelter. And he said, after about a year of just going through the motions of it, you sort of start to just believe it. It's bizarre. And I said, well, you should listen. Well, the methodology is the same, you know, and there are now, I mean, I think the reason why you can put woke into the cult category is that there are people making a living and quite a nice living as deprogrammers. Yeah. You sent me that article about the the 92 year old gentleman who'd been, he was a deprogrammer of Sort of the father figure of them. Yeah, he was involved with saving people from the Moonies, the Hare Krishna. He actually got a few people out of the Jim Jones church before they left for South America. Yeah, yeah, he was been around through the whole thing. I'm glad you brought that up because that is more than likely where this idea first popped into my head was reading that New York Post article that you texted me. I, I think I saw the word brainwashing in there and I thought to myself, this is so refreshing to see it put so plainly. It's not wrapped up in a new buzzword. It's just, it is what it is. You people are brainwashed. You're not thinking clearly about anything because I've been, you know, I grew up in a Baptist church. It wasn't a cult. Some might argue it might be a cult, but it was just organized religion. And all of the same thought terminating cliches that were there at that time, I'm finding yet again, having to deal with only this time people have nose piercings and blue hair, but it's the same thing. It's the same belief that they have ultimate truth, which when you poke at it with a stick, truth becomes very wibbly wobbly, right? It it doesn't exist. It's not robust, but it has its high priests, it has its dogma, and it has an anger and a vitriol when you question it in any way, shape, or form, even lightly, even lightly. You know, we were talking and, you know, off mic, we were talking about some things being potential mental illnesses, but suggesting that you might have a mental illness now is just like taboo. You don't do that. You don't say, hey, are you sure you, you say that you don't feel like you're all there or that you're in the wrong body or something like you okay you doing all right yeah I mean, <laughs> that is a very strange claim to make you know even if you uh try to protect that with some degree of well that's just a, a figure of speech I mean, I I don't think so. I think we are, first of all, the figures of speech that we use. I think they're much more powerful than that. I can't imagine anything as a a phrase uh, a little bit more ominous, in a sense, than a figure of speech. I'd like to see what that figure looks like. That could take a lot of different forms. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, no, I think that that we're we're doing a fabulous job at manufacturing mental illness, Mm -hmm. certainly manufacturing neuroses uh, to the point where you could say, well, no one's, no one's crazy anymore or because everybody's crazy. Everybody's crazy. crazy. Everybody. As long as you're the right kind of crazy. If you think that planes in the sky are spewing chemtrails or that vaccines cause cancer, autism, that's the wrong kind of crazy. Um, well, here's, here's the thing, which my, uh, one of the, uh, I guess you'd say, uh, crazy people that I've been working with, uh, 
and kind of an ongoing art project. I'm getting street people to uh, do renditions of, of, of fairy tales, see what they remember, see how they construct them. But uh, one of the dudes who, uh, he hangs out in a pretty sort of hardcore part of uh, Maryland Parkway, black dude. And he said, you know, the thing that's sad and when a crazy, so-called crazy person uses that frame of saying what's sad, to me, I sort of pay extra attention, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the only definition of what crazy behavior really becomes is not wanting to have money involved with someone. Mm-hmm. Unless you're just maybe giving them, a, you know, but you know, that's kind of the, you know, if you're crazy in the right way, someone will do, you know, business with you. You can get hired, you can get employed, you can get laid, you can, you know, it's all fine. But if you're actually outside the commercial framework of, you know, oh no, not going to, not going to deal with, with that person. Well, <laughs> maybe that is, that's not the good kind of crazy, you know, that's not. Yeah. Yeah. Uh do you have a band? I do. I'm I'm ready to have some fun. I know you're in in a retrograde sort of mood, but uh, I don't know. My my mission is to lift your spirits. So here we go. The band's name is the Bone Girls, <laughs> and they are a transgender band who dress in bright boppy cheerleader outfits with pom-poms, but wearing enormous cod pieces. And their album is called So Happy We Could Poop. But get this, get this. (laughs) Their thing is marching band music. I've had a revelation about marching band music lately. It could be maniacal and annoying, right? That's maybe what some people think about marching band music. And it is about, you know, regimental behavior. That's the idea. But they do it so passionately and so well, it recreates the intuitive respect for the marching band from grand wars and military parades to high school football fields. And when you think about that, that's really one of the first structured exposures to music that many kids get, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. traditionally been, it's been the church outside the school, maybe for some and band, you know, in school, not everyone could take private lessons or has musical parents and stuff. So, and also marching is this crucial team building, you know, inherently team building activity. Uh, and it's real, it's a stabilizing uh, after school influence for, for kids, but mm-hmm. it's a stabilizing influence deeply. So here you have this visualization of conflict and gender, and underneath it is this really intense commitment to marching band music, to being on the same page, to being in step, mm-hmm. and tuning into each other. You know, but it gives a new perspective on that being in tune. There's something maybe worrisome about that. Well, we need to think about that if we're concerned about 
group think and, you know, uh, mob behavior. But on the other hand, there's something very powerful about the team, the tribe, the clan being together, being as one in a larger organization. So that's it, the Bone Girls and mm-hmm. their first full marching, every every track is, is, is marching band related and draws on the whole history of marching from around the world. So happy we could poop. That's great. That's great. Now, I love the juxtaposition between the the gender bendy stuff and the highly regimented march. You know, what's funny is that when I was in high school, I was a skater and I was very anti after school programs, surprising probably zero of our listeners. I didn't think any of that was cool. I didn't want to be a part of it, but I had friends who were in the band. I had a friend who played the trumpet. I had two friends who were drummers and man, they loved going to band. They looked forward to going to band and practicing their. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for people who went to multicultural, multiracial schools, band and sports were the two, you know, maybe theater, if you, if you were lucky to have that, but those, if you had a good sports program, you probably had a band program. And those were two meeting grounds that I think were really, really vital. And because they were non-academic in a sense, they were much more student-directed. The students built the community. They built the community, you know, culture. Uh, yeah, the coaching, the leaders, the teachers were important. But I think that there, there's a lot to be said in that. And I think there's, there's a real secret world to, to marching uh, and to a lot of that tuning in, you know, to each mm-hmm. other rhythm, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. there's a, there's some deep, deep cultural magic and it's global, you know, right. it's absolutely right. global. Think back to our, um, cargo cult, uh, episodes in, uh, the Pacific islands, particularly in Vanuatu. But, but I mean, there was a, there was a marching movement in the Solomon Islands. That's what it was called. But marching is is not just the imitation of what these people think the American military or any military did. No, it's a deep magic of being being together in a group. And it's a different way of thinking about, you compare that physicality to everyone on Twitter just going, yeah, I'm on, I'm going to dogpile on this person because they said something I didn't like. That's a different kind of group behavior, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think the mechanics of it are different. Yes, I would agree with that. You ready for my aphorism? I'm ready. Okay. I've got two because my first is a question, mm-hmm. but it's a good, it's a good one. I was, I was sharpening up some of the hunting uh, blowgun darts because they actually have razor points. So I was thinking of that when I thought of this. What if good intentions so often go awry simply because at core, they're not well-intended? I mean, I really think that's something to think about. You know, when you say, well, good intentions often go astray or awry or whatever. Well, who said, really? I mean, aren't we taking that, you know, 
on, at face value that they really were good intentions. Mm. I'm not so sure about that. I think you can peel back a lot of very strange things. For example, I think, and this is not to demean any sort of mothers around the world or any sort of family relationships, but I think you can look into the family dynamics as some of the best art writing of the last 150 years has done, or maybe more even, but certainly the last, it's been a huge theme. Family relationships are not often based on such good intentions. There's a lot of control. There's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of passive aggression. There's a lot of jockeying for a position, you know? I mean, how many times really is it a clean, clear, good intention that goes off the road? Mm. But anyway, here's my second one, which is more positive, although maybe not. You must always believe that it's never too late for damage control. I think that's a good thought. Oftentimes people go, oh, the horse has bolted the barn or, you know, the house has fallen down. No, the worse the situation, all it means is the more damage control you need. It's mm -hmm. always a good strategy. Always. So. I like that. I like that. I especially like, I've been thinking, I was listening to a podcast today about obsessive compulsive disorder. And the speaker said, too often people believe that anxiety disorders are tied to low self-esteem. So the answer to that would be to have high self-esteem. And he said, "Who? why would anybody want self-esteem at all? Why do you need to esteem yourself at all? And the reason why I bring that up is because your aphorism about good intentions asks a very simple question that I've never heard asked before. And I, I would, I would add to that, you know, my brainwashing, you know, I'm very into non sequiturs right now, but I'm also into plain speech, simple, simple. Well, speech. Those work together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The road yeah. to hell is paved with good intentions. Is it? How do we know? what their intentions were. Oh, well, I only meant the best. You have to take somebody's word for that. <laughs> Do you yeah. really believe well, that? Exactly. And I mean, you start sort of getting this weird world of people being in the wrong body, everyone being on meds and so anxious and weirded out about everything. Well, how would they know what their intentions are? I mean, they don't necessarily know what day it is. <laughs> yeah. My mood is different depending on how much sleep I've gotten, what I ate for dinner, how much exercise I've had. Not, And I'm not on any pharmaceuticals at all. I don't even really look at the computer that much, if you can believe it. Not since January 1st, anyway. And there's a noticeable qualitative shift in my consciousness and how I view the world. Doesn't mean I'm always in a fantastic mood. Doesn't mean I walk around happy all day, but it's very different. It's very different. Mm -hmm. So that's the question, isn't it? If you don't, you don't even know your own intentions most of the time. So how can you make a value judgment on them? How can you say that it was good? Maybe it was bad. Maybe well, I think either way you lose. Intentions. Either right. way you lose, because if your good mm -hmm. intentions go off the road, well, then I just would say, you know, uh, you're a loser then. Hmm. 
<laughs> there's a great line yeah. from no there's a great line from no country for old men that anton sugar says the scary hitman he says to woody harrelson's character if the rule you followed led you to this of what use was the rule yeah there you go <laughs> Oh. All right. Well, what? Well, you, are oh, wait, you ready? Ready? your imaginative challenge? Yes, sir. Okay. All right. Last time was a really hard, abstract thinking one, and I don't know. Maybe I sort of just read your mind and knew that you would be needing something more fun and colorful and mainstream action adventure. So I'm going to uh, propose that you imaginatively visit a loss, somewhat futuristic Las Vegas, rather like what I describe in my novel Zanesville. Mm -hmm. And it involves Iguanadora, a giant transformer robotic type creature, about 10 stories high, maybe. And it is animatronic and it can be manipulated. But you and six other random guests have somehow wandered into this machine. The ride, because it is an attraction that you pay money, was left open. Perhaps uh, young Gus managed to waddle in there at speed <laughs> and you have are now in pursuit and you find yourself trapped with a cast of characters that is yours to invent. But Iguanadora is uh, a marvel of animatronic creation and celebrates uh, gender fluidity. The form is a giant dinosaur, but it's like a giant robotic dinosaur version of the gender unicorn, a little bit hipper, a little bit more armored, a little bit more intense. And as you come to terms with the other people in this great machine, you realize not only are you trapped suddenly within it, it becomes operative and begins to go on a rampage. Now, the question is how you work with your team of strangers, your random team of strangers, to get control of Iguanadora before it completely trashes the entire city, and more to the point for your sake, before the U.S. Air Force out of Nellis Air Force Base is forced to scramble the interceptors and blow the giant robotic mechanism out of existence. Okay, so you're on the All loose, right. strangers. Have cool. fun. Sounds good. All right. Well, that does sound like fun. What would you like did you liked the uh you liked the ai generated image for last time i think I'm i did i thought that, that was fantastic yeah I it looked pretty cool really really apropos mm -hmm. beautiful mm -hmm. beautiful uh let's see what would you like to talk about today okay well we we've been talking about the search 
the speculation about a new paradigm for our age that we sensed a kind of imminence here that there's some sort of trend. I mean, I think a lot of people feel this way. A lot of the, my, my sister used the expression, the, the old ways, you know, mm -hmm. and made a whole bunch of things under that rubric. And I was, I was kind of amazed that she, you know, a lot of people are onto this thinking and it, it covers a lot of territory. It's certainly not just about new technology. It's not about verging towards the singularity of humans no longer being humans because of prosthetic aids like robotics, nanotechnology, supercomputing. It may be that. It may be other things. We've spoken about a few of those. I have three anchor points that I want to run past you. Uh, but I do also have a couple of just stray meditations on language, which they don't really fit into that, but I, I still wanted to mention them. Should I start with those? Yes, please. Okay. These are kind I mean, I think these are interesting and they're part of the Lost Explorers commitment to always be examining language. I was thinking of the word hallmark in the sense of a mm. trademark, interesting, mm. or a signature point. And it's an early 18th century term that comes from Goldsmith's Hall in London, where articles were tested and stamped with such a mark. And I think I gravitated to that because, as we'll see when we get to the tool and tip, I've been very focused on the notion of context. Context versus content is a kind of binary that's out there in the world. We're trying to break those things down. I've had a few breakthroughs on that, and I realize how peculiar, uh, if not mentally ill, that binary is. Context and content, very, very peculiar. So again, we find an, another example of a word, and English is particularly rich in them, that links to a very specific, we know words linked to specific people in time and history, but often place, often place. Mm -hmm. you know, this was a real situation, Goldsmiths Hall in London, and it was stamped with such a mark. And the implication of that is the, the concept of, of a hallmark would have been clear to people uh, in the 17th century, but that term would not have been clear. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we kind of forget that. We kind of forget how that dynamic works. Secondly, uh, I've got a friend who uh, was talking about rehab and we, you know, we know something about rehab. A lot of people are, in, you know, and rehabilitation is a larger sort of word and idea. Well, then I remembered what habilitation means. Put the re, the prefix aside. Habilitation is the highest university degree in many European countries and signifies the fulfillment of a set criteria of excellence. Now you look at that of how rehabilitation has completely moved and changed form from habilitation. Very strange, very, mm -hmm. very strange. Uh, I think that's enough. I've got many more on this one. They're kind of, they'll, they'll flesh out a theme just by themselves over time.
So um, why don't we jump into this idea of mapping the new paradigm? And I'll throw out three anchor points um, for your consideration. And I'm prepared to not defend them because I think they speak for themselves, but to enrich them and to maybe background why they occurred to me first in this discussion. Mm-hmm. The first one is the philosophy and psychology of photography and film. We've been talking about this. We talked about this the last episode. We've been looking at that from time to time in various ways. The more I think about that, the more absolutely essential it is. I think it's a skeleton key to the modern, postmodern age of media illness. Media illness. I think it's so fundamental and so around us all the time that it's it's very hard to see. Um, and there are so many facets of photography and film from microscopy to uh, astronomical film to slow motion to instant replay. We've been just so influenced in so many ways. But I think you can't go past Sunset Boulevard, uh, the Billy Wilder film with the Norma Desmond grotesque character who is something like uh, the female celebrities that we mentioned who are always posing in sizzling bikinis. The mm-hmm. older and older they get, you know, the more they want to pose and sizzle. And that wonderful, famous, iconic line, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. Think about the nature of a close-up. I don't know if, I mean, that isn't inherent in the idea of, photography uh, as of the 19th century. You think of Matthew Brady's, you know, classic portraits, daguerreotypes, you know. Uh, the close-up is, is, is not on anyone's radar at that moment. And yet the optics, you know, the conceptually, the optics are not that complicated. But what that did to us in terms of how it changed our minds, changed our consciousness and our thinking, Philosophy and psychology of photography and film. Second point, and you got me thinking about this. I've been, you know, but more seriously within this context of a a paradigm shift. I think it has to involve a new sense of social time, tempo, tempo. I think that's got to link the secret private mind time, how we organize ourselves on the interior, but social time and media time. So we're not talking about any absolute sense of time as you know, in physics we'll look at with atomic clocks. We're not on that mm-hmm. level, but mm-hmm. a deep cultural sense of time in the way that Edward T. Hall, the anthropologist yeah. would have talked about. Something is happening. We're aware of it. You know, we know the you know, we see signs that say 24-7. We know the news cycle has changed. We we're aware of something, but this is building up to a deeper sense of socially organized and maintained time that I don't think we have a clear definition of yet. I think it's going to take some more time. Mm-hmm. And then I, I did get back to thinking of, of Elizabeth Hurley and Madonna and this Norma Desmond icon. And I, 
wrote down bikinis on the corpses of all the Laura Palmers. And I think that, and you kind of brought this out to last that that if we free the discussion of these female celebrities uh, really being kind of tragically victims of their own celebrity and being naturally vain and trying just to stay current, because yeah. all of that seems very human and sensible. And I don't think we, you know, I don't have any stones to throw at that, even if it kind of makes me uncomfortable now when it should be uh, sort of a turn on and it's not. I think what we've got going there is, as you've pointed out before, is is the fear of death in the form mm -hmm. of the fear of uh, a living death, mm -hmm. uh, a, a mummified, fossilized, enduring existence outside commercial viability, celebrity, and consumerist desire. I mean, I think for people who meant, you know, for people being in the spotlight, just soaked in limelight and adulation, I mean, that must be a nightmare beyond the belief for the phone not to be ringing, you know? And so they think, let's organize a photo shoot and I'll go on a drastic diet and we'll hire someone to doctor the photographs and I'm going to show my jugs and butt, you know? on page six, just like I used to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But really, I don't think it's fair to just lay, you know, pin that all on women. I think that's emblematic of a human uh, crisis. I don't know what that is for men so much. I, I know they're, they're I'm, I'm certainly trying to evaluate that at my age. I know there's some poignant stuff about uh, from the gay male point of view about this, because there's, you know, a cult of young, you know, male beauty. Uh, but it, it's it's more than just youth in the classical Greek sense now. It's about uh, being defunct, defunct mm -hmm. in terms of social media and value as uh, a product and a brand within this matrix of, of society today. So those are my three points. And I think they're kind of a weird uh, triad, tripod to begin with, but... Let me just hear your thoughts and return to that. The first point that really jumped out to me was this idea of a new sense of time. First of all, I like the idea of there being a private mind time. That's very interesting on a quantum level. The idea that there's no such thing as one kind of time, that there is culturally accepted time. There's the time that we all experience uh, waiting for someone to come unlock a perfume cabinet, for example, okay. versus <laughs> playing a video game. I got into this video game yesterday where it's it's kind of kung fu. You're sort of this Bruce Lee character and you're fighting off hordes and hordes of bad guys. And before I knew it, two hours had gone by in a blink. And I thought, oh my God, where did the time go? It's like but, <laughs> yes, like porn. Yeah, exactly. But the idea of there being a, and I like that you said social slash media instead of just social. Exactly. Media. I'm glad you heard that. Yes, yes. That's important. Be because you're right in the fact that nobody has pinpointed what exactly that is. But man, we all know 
what you're talking about. Anybody who has lost an hour scrolling Twitter or looking at Facebook, time moves differently there. It's a sci-fi thing. It's a quantum, not quantum, it's a twilight zone. You can almost see somebody go into a room and somebody says, you know, an hour in this room is like eight years on planet earth. And when you, but uh, kind of the reverse of that. Yeah, exactly. Where you, yes. you live, you live, you somehow live an entire life when you're on Twitter. And yet when you leave it, it's less than a dream. It's, it's a facsimile of a dream or a simulacrum of a dream. It's, it doesn't have the same lasting effect. All you do is feel like, oh, goodness gracious, I've wasted an hour of my time looking at this dumb stuff. What have I been doing with my life? So it's a, but it's different. It is a different flavor. There's a different qualia to the time experienced on social slash, oh shit, on social slash media than, yeah. than normal. And I think, so the other two points here, uh, the media illness brought about by photography, that's also very interesting because it is, we until that point, we had seen ourselves in mirrors. And before that, we'd perhaps seen our reflections in water or reflective, whatever reflective surface we have around us. But photography allows for the implication that a third party unbeknownst to you can see you when you aren't there. So it's less about seeing the self and more about being seen by this imaginary third party. And thus the third man in the woods was created, came up out of the muck, like yeah. in a David Lynch movie, right? The third man has arrived. Yeah. And that ties into sizzling at 56 and this kind of fear of death, a fear of a fear of not being able to live a normal life because because we all sort of know that we're going to outlive ourselves now maybe even a few hundred years ago there was a little bit of comfort in knowing that when you died everything was finally over and i'm not talking about ai or coming back as a hologram or anything like that but have you seen the this website that collects dead people's facebook pages it's getting bigger and bigger by the oh, day no I, I i it makes perfect sense though doesn't it it, it has links and screenshots. I think it's called Facebook Graveyard or something like that. And it's very spooky because some of these people are young and you'll go check it out. And only a few days ago, they were saying things to the effect of, man, I sure do love Burger King, you know, and now they're, now they're ghosts. Well, I, it's, I mean, think my space is all like that. It's just yeah. this cyber graveyard that reminds i had a friend who um managed to score this amazing uh loft uh lower broadway and uh she worked at the empire state building for a while and over a period of time she collected a lot of the tourist photographs of families going up you know most people you know 
say, no, I don't want that. I'm not going to pay this kind of money for that. Yeah, it's a money and issue. And a lot of them are supposed to get recycled. But she had this enormous collection on, and on a whole wall, you know, and all the same background, of course, and these lost families that, you know, and I, I always, I looked at them and I thought, wow, I wonder, I wonder what happened to them, you know? Yeah. You right. Know? Is it? We've, and then you start looking at enough people in front of the same background and you think, wait a minute, it, are those people really different? You know, how many families seem to sort of repeat, you know, mm-hmm. but that's part of the weirdness, the mystery and the magic yeah. and the psychosis of, of the photograph, I think. I think so, too. I think that this third man in the woods can't be ignored anymore. And I think it's become such a big part of the paradigm that the third man has become the primary figure in this tripod. It's not two people who interact anymore. It's a this mysterious third has grown sentience and walks among us and influences what we do. I think that people, the third man used to be God. It used to be a sense of, of God or spirits watching you. And I'm much more sympathetic to the idea, to that idea, essentially. But what we have now is we have a third, it's like a little, it's like a teenager in a basement somewhere who's judging you or masturbating to you or making fun of you with his friends. And maybe that's, I, I can't help but think of Bob from Twin Peaks, the Bob yeah. figure. Just the, I, that's how I picture this third man who's popped up with the advent of photography because we're, this is a very Lynchian concept. And I think Lynch with his fear of electricity and his extremely ironic distrust of film and Hollywood is your Laura Palmer, Laura Palmer corpses in bikinis. It's a very potent visual metaphor for what we're talking about here. I think so. I'm glad you're into it. And for listeners who haven't picked up uh, or remembered what the, what we mean by the third man here, because uh, that term does come up in a few different places, but David and I have a very specific sort of basis for it. It comes from a Ulysses S. Grant quotation, which we particularly like and have uh, mentioned several times over the course of the series, 130 plus episodes. And uh, Grant said, just because two men go into the woods to fight a duel does not mean there isn't a third already there waiting. And I think that what we've both, um, I'm glad you really, you've really gotten on because I think that, that it really is a cool, suggestive scenario. And the power of it, I think, is that that third man's goals and intentions those you know we're not sure we're not sure it's completely open it's so ambiguous that it's very hard not to uh to get intrigued and there's a very powerful suggestion of of influence so it's not as if that third man is going to be a neutral figure somehow that's that's not on the cards and that in Grant's scenario. That's certainly not the suggestion that I come away with. And I don't think you do either. And that variability uh, 
You know, that's like a, a line from T.S. Eliot, too, in The Wasteland, which I really, who is that third who walks among you, mm-hmm. walks beside you? You know, that kind of, it's from, um, I think he took it from one of the polar explorers having this hallucination, which is very common in isolated situations. And I think it's a dream scenario that I've often had where you count, you know, how many people in your group, and there's always one more than there's, you know, it doesn't work. And then you can't, you know. It's something I'm thinking of John Carpenter's the thing. Yeah. <laughs> there just being a guy there who's like, wait, who's that? Yeah. There is a great episode of the cartoon Rick and Morty where an alien parasite comes down to earth. And the way that it survives <clears throat> is by uh, showing up in your house and implanting a lifetime of memories with the creature. So the show is brilliant because the way that this this creature reproduces is essentially by getting you to remember things about its past. And then there will be two things. So first, there's just a guy in their house and uh, the main character, Rick, who's based off of the Back to the Future, um, Christopher Lloyd's character in Back to the Future. He comes in and he's like, wait, who is this? And the family's like, "Uh, it's Uncle Dan obviously you remember uncle dan right and uncle, uncle tom. and the, yeah or uncle tom right and they're like uncle and then uh remember that time with and then they flash back to a memory that they have with uncle tom and when it flashes back to the present now there's like a weird little worm creature there he's like well who the hell was that and they're like duh that's that's wormy mcwormerson right and that's it keeps these uh parasites keep multiplying by having false memories so that's like that's it's a really funny episode but that's like the third man put into uh pop culture and i also want to make uh a, another point on this because we've been talking about time now i'm thinking that when you're in that social media time space that we talked about it's almost like you're you're in the third man's time like that's where the third man lives oh i like that Mm -hmm. I like that. There's a lot to, uh, if you try to draw a line between that idea, which has just appeared, and the concept of false memories, which is both something that is uh, talked about and deprogrammed in real life, but some really great writers, obviously Philip K. Dick, have made a lot of use of that theme. Isn't there a line between that? Because it's 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 the a false memory seems very peculiar to me. It it I, I can't distinguish that between uh that idea and a dream in many, mm-hmm. many cases. I think that's blurred. But if you look at another perspective, like this conceptual imaginary third man's perspective, which is now we're kind of yielding sovereignty to. You know, we're somehow, it's no longer God or the angels or, you know, the great hierarchy, the great chain of being, or the authority really of political forces, the king or the queen, you know, we're not really into any of that, really. And yet we are ruled by hierarchies. And it's not the Illuminati, really, sadly, for most people. That's kind of too cool for the average. I think more average person is looking at in terms of a very abstract sense of 
what the media has given them in the sense of Twitter and social media. So many articles, so many times the the TV and the news reports on tweets on all these anonymous people out there having opinions. And that has now become the composite third man. And it's that time that we're living in. How long? I mean, it's essentially an attention span, isn't it? It's Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, how long does something stay fresh? Well, that's, you know, it depends. If it's something important that you want to get across, you're lucky if anyone, you know, pays attention to it. But if it's something you want to hide or something you're embarrassed about, well, someone's going to find it, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's like we're living in a false memory. Yeah. It's like our, our our present state is, you always hear that you're supposed to live in the present and be present. But what happens when you're present such that it is, is already a false memory and that it's already been uh, written and by somebody else who's who's not you somebody who is watching you and who is judging you i think you bringing up the idea that there are people who are watching and who are judging that's that the first <clears throat> time the third man appeared on our planet was not uh it was probably before photography he's always been there in gossip and rumors and reputation and things of that nature but the photograph really solidified it and I want to make like a quick distinction between things like novels and films and art, which I believe to be different things because they inherently take you to a place that doesn't feel, this is all feelings based, but it doesn't feel like when you're on social media, watching a good film. I just watched a really great uh, series on Netflix that Nicholas Winding Refn just released uh, and he's a very evocative filmmaker, lots of neon, lots of smoke, very Lynch influenced. His his best friend and mentor is Alejandro Hodorowsky, whom he consults for a tarot reading before he does any project. And uh, when you're in his films, you're very much in a slow uh, uh, story that's being built as it goes along. So without intellectualizing it or perhaps even finding the proper words for it, it's a different feeling. But that social media feeling, that feeling of being judged by something and time is off a little bit, you don't feel like yourself and you occasionally get, you. it's like these constant trap doors that keep opening and you fall into pits where you care about things that you know you don't care about. That's all this guy. That's, that's, and, and he's king right now he's a lovecraftian yellow king type figure who's who's got everybody by the nuts okay there's some interesting things here i think that that this idea of time and the sense of tempo psychological tempo is the uh the most provocative of the three but i because i think the psychology of, film, of photography and film will always link back around. It's a dynamic, it's a medium, it's an interactive with this idea. But it made me think that, you know, because um, I've had a big David Lynch uh, revisit of light, uh, as well, not just his films, but some of his beautiful visual art. And I, I have some time for his uh, recordings as well. He's a He's taken sound very seriously in his films as, uh, and is really a great sound designer. Um, but he's produced some albums that, that I have some time for. Some people, I think, think they're a little bit odd, even odder than his other stuff. I but, like Crazy Clown Time. I think it's yeah, a good album. Yeah. Uh, 
I, I think that's a proper album, I think, whereas um, The Air is on Fire is a, is a kind of uh, ominous meditative soundscape, you know? Um, I like that one too, to be honest, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Crazy cloud time. He's he he doesn't have quote unquote the best voice, but I don't it never bothered me. It reminds me, I I think it's in a register with William Burroughs' voice. I think it's Mm, very, mm -hmm. very uh distinct and, and idiosyncratic. But here's um you know, reading some of the criticism about him that there are, I mean, there's a, a repetition of things that get said, certainly his motifs, things like electricity, uh, the black lot, you know, a lot of stuff that gets covered, uh, certainly the the surrealism, uh, and, and there are a few sort of explanations of it. But one simple thing that he does repeatedly across his films uh, which fits into the surrealism delivery, but the mechanisms of it tie into, uh, from a writing point of view, tie into playwrights like Mamet and Harold Pinter. And he really changes the tempo of mm-hmm. interaction between characters. I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes they do start moaning and having spasms and, and stuff. Okay. But even when just take aside that gimmick, which I find wonderful. I I just uh, I had an uncle, not an uncle Tom, but just an uncle, uh, Uncle Floyd, and uh, he had ears that were so big, they were always sunburned, and <laughs> every Thanksgiving he would be over at my father's house, and my stepbrother and I would wait for it because Floyd would always choke on an ice cube as a way of getting attention. If he didn't feel like he was, you know, getting enough, and he always did, and you could time it. But the tempo of interactions of characters. He would have loved Twitter. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. But, I, you know, imagine the time, and I think that I, I found a few examples of, of actors like Naomi Watts and some people he's worked with a lot, uh, talking about his his gift of working with actors. And I think a lot of famous film directors are not necessarily good at that, you know? Um, they're, they're big picture people. They're, uh, they're extensions of the cinematographer. Uh, mm-hmm. They may or may not be, be good with actors, but they certainly aren't good at getting this eccentric vision of a kind of slowed down, world and if you've seen the rabbits uh show you know which is embedded Mm -hmm. inland empire thing of its own i mean the the gimmick there is really entirely pace of of speech and non sequiturs Mm -hmm. it's it's exactly like the french absurdist inesco you know who started off writing things based on uh learning to speak english and how Mm -hmm. the weird things didn't make any sense Mm-hmm. And yet he started laughing hysterically because he thought, oh, you know, in one dialogue, uh, he's got a child. And in the next dialogue, the, the child's gone, which is kind of like the weird world of TV. But it's, it is a tempo as well as a logic and non sequitur sequitur issue. And it is true. If you, if you ever, you know, follow the practice of if someone asks you a question or is is eager for a response, 
and you just hold back a little bit. That's a powerful response itself. I mean, some of, I mean, I had to really sort of learn and practice it because I'm sort of like, you know, I want to, you know, jump normally, you know, I don't want to be a dickhead. And, but I think, you know, it's worth becoming a little bit more thoughtful. And it's also interesting to use that as a powerful kind of rhetorical technique of it really, it gets attention in the same way, like in my classrooms, sometimes I'll ask, you know, and everyone's, you know, they start leaning forward and they start, you know, it's that desperate thing. Oh, I don't want to miss anything, you know? And mm-hmm. I think that that's a way of, the new paradigm is going to require a different kind of alertness than we've been able to get away with up to now. I think the, that I yeah. think we're going to wake up truly. Yeah, the third man can't stand that pause. The third man is a Zoom call, or I did a podcast recently because I've been working on this. In ju- I heard um, some Russian fellow who said, the problem with Americans is that they hate those silences. They can't stand to just sit in silence. And we had a podcast the other day with a guest and he put a question to Kelby and I, and Kelby's very good at pausing and thinking. And I decided, you know what? I'll pause and think too. And about five seconds went by and the guy said, did we freeze? Are we still here? Are we? Yeah. Yeah. We're still here, man. We're just thinking. I love the idea of a change in tempo as uh, a remedy in a sense for what's going on, because part of this demands the constant churning, the constant thinking, the output, constant output. It hates pauses. It hates silence, dead air. You can't have dead air because this thing it's a chatterbox it it it's fed by how often we and i think that how often we talk i should finish my thought but somebody like lynch you would dig this nicholas winding reffin show too because reffin's a total uh, disciple of david lynch he's i mean he's even got the strobe effects in this one and some of the more interesting uses of soundscape i think the only real difference is that he's a big synth pop guy and lynch is more of a 50s sort of doo-wop you know mixed in with harsh uh you know industrial sounds right yeah um but uh refin is notorious for this too of having dialogue that goes like this what are you doing nothing what are you doing Right. And yeah. you're sitting there watching it and you're like, this is taking forever. What the fuck? <laughs> like, this, you yeah. know, because we're used to that Tarantino snappiness and Joss Whedon and all these other writers who who go, 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 go. But it's hypnotic. It's hypnotic to get into that slower rhythm and to pause and to think. And I think that pausing and thinking every time you do that you can see that third man start to melt back into the dirt it's like no please just 
just keep speaking, keep me, keep me going, stay within my time, the time that I've made. Um, well, it's interesting because it makes me think about rehearsal. Think of that rehearse, you know, think of a hearse, you know, that's an odd idea, isn't it? Um, I think one of the things that makes that technique very powerful when we see it, whether it's done by Lynch or uh, Samuel Beckett, or, you know, it, it's become it, it, a major uh, mode and tempo of interaction, certainly in avant-garde uh, art. And it's kind of counter to the thum, 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 thum you know of of sitcom mm -hmm. or uh, or tarantino um and mammoth keeps the tempo going mm -hmm. and just often makes uh people speaking at cross purposes um that's different than than what we're talking about with lynch and the friendship service and others uh but i think what's going on when when in real conversational terms why people get anxious and how the third man anxiety takes form is that people have even, well, especially without knowing it and certainly without acknowledging the practice of it, they're rehearsing every interaction. They're rehearsing the, the large mm -hmm. social structure mm -hmm. and they're really measuring for congruence. They're kind of doing a radar thing of pinging at this future that you know it's just it's it's not very far in the future we're talking milliseconds but they're pinging out their locational echolocation uh expectations of what's going on and i mean you think about people who you would characterize as being they're not stupid at all but they're very structured straight laced people who really don't have a lot of flexibility and imagination. They they get very uncomfortable around silences. Non sequiturs really throw them. They think they're being made fun of. Uh, they they aren't sure how to respond because they had their they kind of had their line ready. You know, they knew what was going on. And now, oh, that's been subverted in some sense. And they don't know, well, is this a game? And if so, well, what can I throw back? Um, and to me, in my definition, the smarter and more lateral a person is, the quicker they pick up on that and kind of get into it. Um, but then, of course, they've been subverted to someone else's game values and game structure. And that's could be fun, but that is also... Um, as we know how how uh, psychosis extends itself the psychotic is excellent at that you know and it can mm -hmm. be really playful i had a girlfriend whose whose mother used to say oh i think your hair looks fine you know she was always do always always never never impolite never openly aggressive but always this little you know this wire of you know, mm -hmm. destabilization. Yeah, I, my in-laws, my mother-in-law is like that too. She's always got something playful to kind of keep me on my toes. I have heard it said a lot recently that 
autism and the rise in autism might have something to do with evolution and an actual defense mechanism against what we're talking about. Because if you are autistic, you're very much inside your own head. I have a friend who's autistic, very smart guy, uh, but he's in his own little world. So if he wants to talk about Daniel Inouye and the 44th Battalion in World War II, that's what we're going to talk about that evening. It doesn't matter where the conversation's going. He's going to talk about his pet autistic obsession. And I wonder about that as a counter to this pinging back and forth and this being two or three steps ahead and having your response ready. Because on the one hand, I don't know how he wouldn't respond to non sequiturs very well, probably. He would probably just get quiet. But I do wonder if that's not a defense against all of this, like the ability to be inward and to have an inner life. And I guess I shouldn't have said that he's autistic. I don't know. I don't think he's been clinically diagnosed with that, but everybody who's around him can attest that there's, there's definitely a singular focus to that. Maybe I'm not giving him the credit for perhaps just being a elevated person and being outside of that loop. So I take back what I said about him being autistic, but my point still stands. He seems to have something figured out. Well, I think you could put autism up with, uh, I mean, many of the conditions uh, that are afflicting mass numbers of people today, but certainly um, Gen Z and talk about anxiety and depression and triggers. And mm. I think there is a, a, a an emergent, position that these are all uh, defense mechanisms. And I mentioned our uh, upcoming book, hopefully soon, the mm -hmm. Psychic Defense Manual to uh, a colleague. And she actually thought, not, not really being familiar with the show, she's not uh, someone I speak to often, her first assumption hearing psychic defense, that it might be exactly about analyzing these conditions because she kind of takes a hard line view that it's kind of like her attitude about COVID. It's not denying that there's any problems out there because she knows plenty of people, particularly with, with autistic kids, not denying, not denying any of these things. Uh, the transgender phenomenon, uh, anxiety, depression, the social media overdose thing, triggering, not denying any of it, but it becomes, in her view, uh, and also a way to protect yourself against everything. You kind of control everything. Well, I can't do that because I'm going to get triggered. Oh, well, now that you've told me that, I can't in good faith bring up that topic you know, because it's going to trigger you. But unfortunately, actually, the more I think about it, I can't walk around that topic. It's too fundamental. You know, it isn't just like having a peanut allergy, you know, by analogy, it's much bigger than that. And on it goes. And I think there is something about that that is really quite insidious. 
And I'm not suggesting in any way that this is a one-to-one ratio that people are thinking, well, I'm going to be like this so I can, you know, not have to deal with all these other things. No, it doesn't work. I'm not saying, and no one is saying that. But it is peculiar, the effect that it has and the degree to which we walk around, you know, these things. And I think, did you see, it was... um, it was a big time meme. It, it, it was waiting to happen, but people dressed in these big sort of donuts, these protective donuts. And some of it was standing, you know, six feet apart during COVID, you know? Oh, yes. Yes. I've seen and, this, and, yeah. But some of it was much bigger of like, well, let's just extend that indefinitely because everyone's scared of running into everyone else. And there are whole lots of people who have just given up with on any kind of physical interaction. Not sure about how sex works with that. But everybody's in these bubbles, these big marshmallow, you know, bumper car bubbles. And I, I think there is a, I mean, you don't want to say that anyone is consciously using these uh, debilitating uh, behaviors as some sort of strategy. But on the other hand, we have a lot of great people in the psychology field who've often said that, you know, the symptoms you see are really attempts at solutions, you know, from within. We early, early in the series talked about that with uh, issues about the mentally ill, how those questions are decided, who's really is mentally ill, but also how that relates to outsider artists, you know? Um, so there's something in there and it's more than just the question of objectively who's nuts and who's not, although that's pretty important, or (laughs) what topics are open for discussion and what topics should we avoid? I mean, you and I have been talking lately about like there's too much information often at times about, uh, you know, sex things, sex stuff. And you think it's not really sexy. It's not it's just kind of, ooh, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's too in your face in the media. It's it's inappropriate. It's at the wrong time. And it's kind of gross. Not just juvenile. It's oftentimes just gross. And. That is kind of autistic. It's being behaviorally at the wrong time and place. Your tempo isn't right, and your sense of context isn't right. You know, you've got too much interior being projected outside, or not enough outsides getting inside. Not enough outside getting inside is is the biggest one. I listen to a lot of psychologists talk about obsessive compulsive disorder because it's something that I've had to work through in the past and occasionally still pops up every once in a while. And obsessive compulsive disorder is a misregulation of the amygdala, the uh, the fight or flight response. So you walk around all day in a feeling that you are going to die. Uh, and really? The only, yeah. And the only way that the, the, the mind can and work with that because the body is so sort of objective with this kind of feeling state because you're getting flooded with adrenaline and cortisol from the minute you wake up until the minute you go to sleep exhausted and you begin to develop these ticks and you'll often see 
people doing the most absurd things like walking backwards and walking forwards or flipping a light switch on and off because your brain has has to make a connection to something to justify the chemicals that are flowing through your body. So it'll say something like, if you don't turn that light on and then off again three more times, then you're going to die. Your family's going to die, whatever, whatever. It's a really, it's a really shitty way to live. Um, but the psychologists who I listen to practice exposure response therapy, ERT, and cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, and what they say about that is that when you, that your, your brain is constantly looking for a crutch. So let's say that this is my lucky pencil. And every time I get a bad thought and think that I'm going to die, I rub my lucky pencil and that's what keeps me going. I'm externalizing uh, the agency and not just the agency, but the autonomy of being able to do that on my own. It's all externalized into the lucky pencil. And that's what OCD people do with their tics. And that's what I think a lot of these, uh, a lot of these people do with their various anxiety and depressive disorders as well. Something that can come very often from real, real trauma, real tragedy, it can develop into these kind of diseases. And then they eventually get to the point where it lacks any sort of feasibility where, well, you have to leave the house or you have to be able to hear certain words without freaking out. And what it comes down to is exposure response therapy. So I, for the benefit of the people around me, for the benefit of people who suffer from things like this, from wearing the donut to being triggered by this, that, and the other, it's not a cold kind of Tucker Carlson, Fox News, Ben Shapiro, facts don't care about your feelings type thing. It's literally for people's own good. You, you have to be exposed to things that you don't like. And you have to be able to process them in your head without the safety net, the crutch of your various rhetorical brick walls or strategies to avoid dealing with troublesome feelings. Um, until you do that on your own, just you, you're never going to get better. And the issue is, is that because we did used to be a bit colder about this kind of thing, you know, shut up and get back to work, which isn't great either. Uh, the upside of that wasn't that everybody was happy all the time, but you didn't see the proliferation of these uh, just largely silly and vapid ways of existing, right? Where, you, where you're constantly in danger and constantly externalizing that danger and then constantly putting it on other people who have their own things that they're dealing with uh, to deal with for you. So that's just kind of, that's just sort of how I see it. And I know that it unfortunately puts me in the camp with, of a lot of sort of hard-nosed, hardline, uh, more conservative, right-wing facts don't care about your feelings type people, but I swear it's, it's for the best. People have to be able to deal with this kind of thing. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting way to put it because they, they don't have to, they, I mean, that's the third man. So that's, well, yep. somebody do something about it because something needs to be done. If no, if, if the individual doesn't, well, then they could just 
die alone in their apartment. Yeah, they could. You know, that happens plenty of times. I mean, if you're too depressed to get out of bed and you don't get out of bed, where are you? You're in bed. Yeah, you are. <laughs> you are. And we forget. And it's comfy. That. It's comfy. Don't get me wrong. Well, it's comfy. For a while. For a while. For a while. And then you yeah. get bed sores and <laughs> this kind of sucks. I think that that's, I, I really love the three points that you made. I like that we singled out time as an issue for this new paradigm. I love that the third man is becoming the boogeyman on this show and is taking on a kind of Bob-like life of its own. Uh, but I want to move into our closing segments here. If that's cool with you, we'll pick it up when we. It is. I, 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 I'll, I'll just round off our, our three introductory points. And in terms of the third man, because you mentioned and, and you just kind of implied a little suggestion of like a kind of like a peer in the mist, you know, as you're walking down the, the boardwalk, you see it. You mentioned a kind of a change where what we're like today, which is, of course, the big theme of, of the whole series of trying to define when the modern era starts, how much time frame are we really looking at when did all of these psychological problems emerge and you you have implied just just a few moments ago that this is something different that people didn't used to be like that and i think what's so interesting about that and this is something that ties into the uh, psychology of photography and film we really don't have much of an idea of what people were like i mean think about it before the photographic era which well precedes the record the sound recording we we don't have that that yeah. framework we have literature we have stories and that's a very different different project i mean thank god we do have that um but that excluded a lot of people from participating in those worlds and there's a lot of frameworking within that that we have to you know, take, not take for granted. We need to be very careful about that. And I think that's an interesting point of part of, this is to summarize and sort of close that off. One of the key facets of the mental illness of our time is we're paralyzed with doubt about whether or not this is new. We want it to be new and yet that doesn't reflect very well on us if it is new. And it certainly, in any case, doesn't help us solve the problem. So I took that note down. I have thoughts, but I'm going to save them because I think that's a perfect place to pick up next time. Make a note here, pick up next time. And we circle. I love writing things down. All right. Iguanadoro? Oh, yeah. <laughs> me and six other people. I'm leaving Gus out of this. He tricked me into it. Okay. He, he ran in and then he ran Good out. Good father instinct. And the safe. Door yeah, he's safe. The door shut. So I'm in there with six other people. And we're in the control room. The control room door is locked. I'm saying that the control room in this case is in the head. Don't know if that's true, but okay. I'm assuming it's, that's where it is. Hey, it's your robot dinosaur monster. 
So I am stuck in there with a Buddhist monk, a competitive gamer, mm. a Muslim terrorist, Ooh. a nudist who has pika, right? So he likes to eat dirt, a psychiatrist for dogs, and midget Mr. T. Okay. Midget Mr. T made it in there. Now, we are stomping around the city and everyone's freaking out because we've gone through the typical film version of this where we've all gotten to know each other and our quirks and Iguanadoro stomping around and we're thinking, oh my God, how many people are we killing? And the Buddhist monk is sitting in a lotus position and he says, life is brief, life is suffering, all we can do is sit and let whatever happens happen. And so we all say, no, that's not good enough. We don't, we don't want to just do that. So the first one we get to try to figure this out is the competitive gamer. We say, hey, you're inside playing video games all day. We want you to pilot this thing. We want you to take control. And he says, I can't take control. Look at this control panel. This isn't like a PlayStation controller. And we say, shut up, get to work, <laughs> do something good for once in your life. So he's there and he's trying to take control and he's pulling levers and pushing buttons and he's starting to get control of, of the mechanical dinosaur mutant transformer. But then the gigantic creature decides that it doesn't like that. And it sends an electronic shock up through it that completely fries the gamer's brain. His eyeballs light on fire and he drops dead. Well, so much for that. So next, now that we realize this thing is sentient, perfect. We have a psychiatrist. Psychiatrist for dogs. What but, could go wrong? <laughs> but what could go wrong? So the psychiatrist for dogs steps up, all of her training coming to full bear. And she's saying, you know, okay, now I want you to get in touch with your feelings. I want you to see a green rolling field. I want you to, when you hear the sound of this bell, I want you to, to sit down. And I want you to stay. And she rings the bell. The transformer sits down and immediately begins to do a barrel roll, crushing tons and tons of buildings. We're getting flown around the cabin. Da, 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 great da, da, da. scene. Yeah, <laughs> I like that one. So we're rolling, rolling, rolling. And she flies up into the ceiling and gets squished like an accordion. No more psychiatrist for dogs. Well, now we're beginning to panic. So we ask the nudist with Pika, can you eat the control board? Just try eating it. Just why not? You like to eat this stuff anyway. And he gets a big glittery boner and starts to eat all the materials. And we're thinking, oh, good. He's ripping it out. He's ripping it out. This is finally going to work. But the thing is controlled by a strange voodoo power. It's not running on electricity anymore. It's running on the soul's of some dead Indian tribe or something. This is a, this is vengeance on a spiritual level. It doesn't matter. Okay. So eventually the guy with Pika's stomach bursts open and all the microchips go everywhere. And he's like trying to eat those as well. That would make for a really good David Cronenberg kind of body horror scene, right? All these wires popping out of this guy. All right. So who are we down to now? We got the Buddhist monk who doesn't care. He's sitting there. We have midget Mr. T and we have the Muslim terrorist. So we say, all right, we've just got to figure out a way out of here. Like midget Mr. T, there's a ventilation shaft up there. 
you can fit in there. Get out and open the door for us. And <laughs> Midget Mr. T wriggles up, comes back down. The door opens. And he says, I pity the fool who thought that I couldn't get that. You know, he strikes a, a heroic pose, you know. And so we're out. Perfect. Midget Mr. T has saved the day. And we're saying, and then we say, look, uh, we know this isn't exactly PC. Uh, this is, might be a little mm, not a not great to ask you. And the 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 Muslim guy says, Can I build a bomb? And we say, Yeah, I mean, like we kind of we have to stop this thing before it destroys the rest. And he's like, Yeah, I know how to build a bomb. Yeah, I can do that. So <laughs> it's one of those inversions of the stereotypes, right? Where maybe throughout the whole film, uh, he's constantly, you know, raging against these these Muslim stereotypes, but in the end, yeah, he can, he knows how to build a bomb. Of course he does. Right. And we're like, okay, cool. So we'll just get the Buddhist monk too. And we look and he's gone. He's already booked it down the stairs, right? <laughs> he's, he's completely booked it down the stairs. So me and Midget T, Mr. T run down these flights of stairs all the way down to Iguanodoro's feet. Terrorist sets the bomb, blows its head off and the nukes are avoided. And then we roll credits. That's what I got. Nice. Nice. I wanted to do sort of, you know, sound effects and Foley throughout that <laughs> yeah. thing. You know, I was really <laughs> wanting to do some building crunching and mm -hmm. yeah, I like it. I like it. That's um, I, I, I saw some scenes there as vividly as I did your uh, action uh Terminator version of the nativity, <laughs> the three wise men, you yeah. know, bloodshed in the the manger you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm, all, mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. all right all right well, well done well done actually well, i'm looking uh you you texted me that your uh that your tip was very simple when your tool is a little bit more complex so why don't we do it in that order unless the tip depends on the tool so you want to do the tip first or the tool normally do tool and tip do you want to yeah. Well, what, I mean, what do you think? I mean, I was just thinking because you said the tip was really simple. You know what? Let's just stick with the Well, program. the tip ties in very much with what we've been talking about in terms of the psychology of photography. And I think it is yeah. so simple. I can get it, get away with it very quickly. And again, it's, uh, it fits in with uh, all of them in the sense that it's very simple to say that the, the problem is doing it. And the, the tip is take 45 minutes to an hour and a half of what would be television viewing or screen entertainment time and watch a, a silent movie from beginning to end. It can be a classic, be Chaplin, Keaton. Uh, there's many, Open Culture is a great website with a huge number of, of classics free. There are some great Russian ones. But many of my students have never seen really a silent film. It, the, the most they've seen is a few you know, seconds. They have a dim idea of it. But really, really get into the tempo of a silent film uh, and how it works. Because I think it's a powerful tool to look into the archaeology of mind of not that long ago. You know, not that long ago, um, going back to 100 years, you know, 1923. And uh, I just did do a little note of what was going on in 1923. King Tut's burial chamber was opened. Wow. Ooh. 
The first home game was played at the original Yankee Stadium in New York. Mm -hmm. Warner Brothers was established. The first issue of Time Magazine. The Great Kanto Earthquake devastates Tokyo and Yokohama. Insulin is used for diabetes treatment. You know, we take that entirely for granted. And Mount Etna erupted. But watch a silent movie and do the real discipline as if it's homework. Uh, I don't care about that. I think work is good. And I think I'm losing patience with people who don't have some work ethic. Uh, really get into the mindset of what a silent movie was about and how silent they were, you know? What see how it works, and certainly, I mean, I, I think people who haven't looked at uh, you know, Chaplin, I mean, the gold rush is my favorite, but he's got you know, just so many greats. Uh, Buster Keaton, I think, is amazing. There's there are a lot, a lot, a lot, but even the really obscure ones and some foreign ones that's an interesting idea, isn't it? You know, you have a whole different frame there of of you know, a kind of universal quality, uh, as in music, you know, but that's a great way to begin to get an idea of how little we know about the consciousness, the collective consciousness of the past. And I think it's very humbling. Okay. Well, here is my tool. And I could describe this very simply, but I really felt motivated to do some writing. So with everyone's uh, grace and permission, I would like to actually read what I, I wrote because I think it, it is a really important idea. I'm excited to hear this. A couple of years ago, I was driving between Reno and my home in the Las Vegas area. And for intricate, inexplicable reasons, I found myself on Potato Road in Winnemucca, Nevada. Forest fires were burning to the west and a series of peculiar circumstances had enfolded me the whole trip. Weird weather, uncertain state of mind. Then something decisively strange happened. I suddenly felt an irresistibly fierce reluctance to get back on the road, despite it still being early in the day. I was seized by the idea of pausing for a while on this obscure, nondescript stretch of street in a small regional western town without a lot going for it. I had one thought in mind, only one. I parked and started listening to short segments of as many different forms of music as I had available in the car and on my phone at the time. I listened to Bach and Handel, Gregorian chant, ambient new age music, funk, blues, Miles Davis, Patsy Cline, Mozart, James Brown, on and on through what passes for my portable music library. I was parked there beside the town cemetery listening writing down and voice memoing my reactions to the music for nearly three hours. Then I felt the fixation lift as gently as it had vigorously grabbed hold. 
why that particular so gorgeously materialized yet perfectly bland place and that moment remains mysterious. But for whatever reason, I felt an acute need to investigate my psychological reaction to familiar and enjoyed works of music across many genres in that precise location, Potato Road. Something about those setting, that setting and those coordinates spoke to me. I'd found a kind of interdimensional testing ground, and this is the key to this tool. My psychic responses to the many different types and styles of music and my immediate recorded impressions surprised me still because I've listened to the music many, many times over many years. In a quiet, eccentric way, the interlude was enormously instructive for me. What I'm sure of is that in broader terms, I got a vivid reminder that I believe is fundamental, as in universally valid. Context so profoundly influences content, the two are entangled at a quantum philosophical level. What's more, I came without effort to rediscover the complexity of context. In this context, so to speak, it had to include the who, where, when, and how of the music's original creation, as well as of the recordings. We're probably aware of some of these details regarding music we think we know well, but certainly not all and not with any kind of uniform consistency. The context of creator intent and prime desired audience provides still more complications, which may, of course, be greatly influenced by time and fashion. But not to mention the matter of our own context. How did we come to know about a particular work of music in the first place? How did we come to own access to it? Then there's the matter of all the contexts in which we've listened to the music in the past. On and on the ripples, quite a number of contextual frames before we get anywhere close to Potato Road. And I feel confident in saying that Winnemucca needs explanation if you don't live there. Uh, it needs a, quite a bit of explanation. Looked at in this way, context starts to expand to the point of being very hard to define, in other words, to contextualize, you can almost say, what isn't context? Where does text, as in any kind of subject, begin? This, in turn, can come to suggest that awareness, really deep, sudden awareness of context, isn't first about place and time, or personal and therefore inherently relative perspective. It's a crucial part of the process of being able to draw any distinctions and to determine any boundaries at all. It may even be the best and clearest name for this complex elemental process, the name true, so to speak, which makes it part of a very exotic, magical set of conceptual entities that are their own witness. They define themselves and they alone. Evidence of this 
is that ironically, the more intensely you become aware of context at any given point, the more decontextualized your situation becomes. That's a very odd experience and one I think hints at deep constructs and flows of consciousness and how it operates. And that's where I'm going to leave that. But I think that the notion of suddenly wanting to interrupt a perfectly interesting and bizarre and yet ordinary road trip to have a review of the portable music that I had with me. And then my responses to it, which were completely surprising, I might say, completely surprising. And just in very practical terms, uh, there were some pieces of, of extremely famous classical music that I thought would work anywhere because they're, you know, universal. That's how I think of them. That wasn't always the case. There were some places of root urban music that I just thought, well, this is not Potato Road. They, It was quite the opposite. I could not have predicted my reactions. And so I changed around my whole response to my library. I got into my music selection and really did a dig and really kind of index things, you know, around. So that alone was interesting. And I suggest that as part of the tool number one. But I think that one's music and its relationship to, you know, the outside world getting in your head, that's a, that's a beautiful example of that. It's a way of looking at our very notion of context and if we can break away from this idea that context and content, um, which is another way of saying form and content, that's a false binary. And we need to really feel that within us. You know, you can't just think that and say that. That's not meaningful. You have to feel that in a deep sort of psychic way for that to, to really hit home. And I don't think you could do that on a sustained basis. But every once in a while, seek out a potato road moment, time and place as a prism to examine some deep, deep grammars. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, I don't have anything to add. I've took a lot of notes, but I would just repeat back to you what you've already said. Uh, I want to do that. <clears throat> what I will add is that, uh, you know, I, brought up this television show that I watched recently and that was a kind of potato road moment because of how the filmmaker contextualized some songs and some pieces of ambient music and juxtaposed them in interesting ways and there were times in the show like your issue with the classical music where I actually didn't think it worked very well I thought mm, that doesn't that doesn't go I wonder what he I wonder what he saw that I I didn't see but yeah would it work to play um to stop on Potato Road and start going through Rage Against the Machine, heavy metal, would that work? You know, the classical didn't quite work. How did the Gregorian chants go? That worked pretty well, I have mm. to say. It was a little bit odd. There, I mean, it's interesting that there was kind of like an aftertaste to that. It was, it was the the first moment was good, but there was a kind of a finish to it, whether your metaphors is wine or whatever kind of things that you would do in a taste test sort of way. It was, um, there were, there were layers to it and, and it didn't, it didn't go the, it, it, it degraded rather than 
became more resonant and appropriate. There I'm was assuming Patsy reason. Klein worked really well. Yeah, there was some people like this should be like a perfect kind of uh, yeah. soundtrack almost. But um, for instance, some Tupac actually sort of really, you know, there were some things that surprised me. And right. I think that the potato road moment is when you suspend your expectations mm-hmm. and you confront the third man possibility, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. And only going into the woods to find the third man already waiting. You have to deal with that. Otherwise, your expectation is the frame that you're going to see. Yep. And that's going to work fine most of the time. But there's an awful lot that you're not going to be aware of. And you're going to build a new, a continuing future in barnacled and wallpapered. Right. Wallpapered right. with these expectations that may uh get further from really what's going on but they're they're finally no protection from the third man you know right the which is why you said the contextualization leads to a decontextualization right it's it's a new it's tearing down the wallpaper going yeah. into the woods after the third man with a elephant yeah. gun you know <laughs> doing it with some some corazon you know some yeah. some joy and accepting that and not not letting the panic mm. get you because mm-hmm. the panic will get you not i mean i used to say that the man in the shark tank died of fear not a mark on him mm-hmm. you know and i think that's a lot of what's going on with with today's mental illness that we're trying to sort of unravel uh yeah, you got to go after the third man and and be willing to experiment. This is, you know, our whole lost explorers thing of being able to to explore and to take a little bit of time to see what actually works, to break down some truisms, to review some cliches. You yep. know, I do this with my students and it's phenomenally effective because everyone knows certain things and then they get their hands on it. They think, Oh, maybe there's more to this than maybe there's a third man waiting in the woods, you know, mm-hmm. but let's not be paranoid about that. So we don't go back into the woods. Let, let's, let's think, well, there might be, you know, a whole bunch of other options. We haven't thought of them yeah. all, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Do you have a dream for us today? I do. It's been a really, really rich dream phase with a, a, an underlying theme of the composite places some really vivid uh, compositing of, of strange uh, landscapes, environments, locales, some very familiar, but always with this very powerful takeout of, I am glimpsing the other world or an other world um, in pretty realistic terms. Uh, one of them faded away. I was, I was, with Mickey Dolans, who must be now, you know, pushing the, the, the last surviving monkey. And I was walking around a very kind of weird suburban, uh, but kind of the kind of neighborhood that's near airports with, with low level lighting under, under cloud. And he was kind of a, a very wise sort of guru figure. And he still had quite a bunch of young women around him. But walking around the neighborhood with him, uh, I noticed there was a lot of dog shit everywhere. But that dream worked into something. I woke up th- then and uh, 
there were coyotes howling. And then I did put on my meditative uh, David Lynch hat. And I thought of some things and I wanted to know if I could influence my dreaming. And I thought of an idea that I had as a kid about, I didn't phrase it this way, but I, I thought of book of osmosis. I had two magical books that I pointedly didn't want to read. I just wanted to hold and smell and look at the photographs. One was on treasure hunting. And there were some uh, houses in Central California, the Gold Rush area that were mentioned. And I was so excited about being a treasure hunter as a kid. And the other was about the moon. And I just loved the, the tactical feel of them. And I, I sacredly didn't want to try to absorb them in a conventional reading sense. So I, I took those back to bed with me in my mind. And then I also thought of, and he's been on my mind lately. He was a friend in college who died uh, a year after college. He was a year ahead of me and he died of leukemia. And we did a lot of tripping together. Interesting guy, beautiful, beautiful on the piano. But at one point um, he lived with his girlfriend in this uh, house uh, on the New Hampshire side of the river. And he was from New Hampshire and they bought at this uh, garage sale a painting, which I tried to get even after he died because it was so haunting. It was a basic living room scene of a kind of uh, disconnected family, but one person was playing at the piano. But behind it on this wall in the painting, which had this really very peculiar wallpaper, were these faces that were looming out but you couldn't quite see them fully. And it was very haunting and suggestive. And I thought, my God, I, even if it was just a yard sale painting, I've always wanted that. So I took that back to sleep. And I did dream of a derelict house. Uh, it was in up the road in uh, Urington, Nevada. And uh, very kind of, it would be spooky if you thought anybody lived there. But in the dream, I acquired it, and I was going to turn it into a kind of outsider art thing. And I was walking around it, trying to deal with its dereliction, occasionally stepping through planks, and the joists were there. But I came to a room that did have weird hallucinogenic wallpaper, and I just couldn't stop looking at it. And I got a very, very peculiar sense that I was right on a fragile balance in the whole universe of really gorgeous, meditative, liberating fascination, like seeing the secrets, seeing the matrix code, seeing behind the scenes, and also being hypnotized to the point of paralysis. And right at that moment, when I was becoming pretty much fixed, I couldn't really, I'd forgotten about the rest of the house and my idea of turning this into a roadside mystical art thing. Fortunately, uh, my first wife, who was absolutely uh, on the psychopath scale, walked in in the dream to waken me kind of like remember we talked about hercules you know and the chair of oblivion uh, 
waking Theseus uh, in, in Hades. And the thing that's was really got me in the dream. I went from this total fixation, this OCD devotion to the patterning on this wallpaper. I transferred all of that instantly to her, mm. but not her body. She had a really cute rear end, which I really enjoyed. She was not necessarily a leading edge fashion gal in real life back in the day, but she was in the stream and she had the most amazing pair of boots on that were, well, the effect was erotic, but not for any obvious reasons. They really just were so cool and they looked super comfortable. And the first question was like, where did you get those? Like, they're not from America, you know? Are they, you know, Asia or Buenos Aires? There's some cool place that's not afflicted with our structural values because I'd never seen them before. And I woke up thinking, am I going to transfer that intense fixation on the wallpaper to everything now? And just... Fortunately, she reached out and scraped some of the wallpaper off and underneath it was this damaged layers of money, mm. real money, but millions of dollars, but all spoiled behind it. And I woke up and I thought, oh, wow, I'm, I'm going to go for a walk. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Wow. It's so cool that you were able to influence that too. It is possible. I really think that's a great discipline. I, I think it's hard. I don't know. I think it, it requires a lot of things. Eating at the right time, being certainly a, a certain degree of tiredness, uh, weather, you know, noise, your partner. There's a whole bunch of things involved in that. But I really think it's a meditative practice to try to get in the, the groove with if you can. And just to, I mean, it's no, no harm in doing it, you know, mm -hmm. just try Shaping with that, with that, I will press stop. <laughs>